listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Listeners, it's been so long. Time to discuss with Professor Michael Hudson, the author of The Bubble and Beyond, and forgive them their debts, super imperialism, and so many others. We're lucky to have uh, Michael with us yet again to continue uh, our series of interviews. And Michael, uh, here we are. We're in Australia, at least. We've made it through COVID. America still being uh, whacked by it. But uh, our central banks—they've uh, really put. A lot of pressure on society. It seems like uh, Main Street, uh, the mainstream economy is struggling, but uh, Wall Street's powering ahead and sitting behind that, of course, is the real estate market, which is also booming. And uh, yeah, society's economic fragility, you know, it's been weighed down by high land prices and record high debts, but central banks have taken the easy road and cut interest rates significantly. Seems like they only cut interest rates uh, when the market's faltering, but uh, if property prices keep heading northwards, uh, they're fine about that. Uh, has uh, this macroeconomic fragility, um, it, it's undermining our resilience and it feels like central banks have nowhere else to go. Uh, where do you see the role of central banks heading? You're saying our resilience. Uh, who, is the w- who, who is the we here? Uh, for the central bank, the we is their clients, the commercial banks, and their role is, in real estate is to keep the interest rates low so that uh, this will support real estate prices, create uh, a loan market for banks, and remember 80% of bank loans in the United States and England, probably Australia, are mortgage loans. So the function of central banks is to support the loan market for commercial banks. It's not, when you say our, uh, you may be a real estate speculator, but uh, if you're part of the 99%, that's not part of the our that the central banks are after. The our is the 1%. So you can say when the central banks say we, that's the 1%. That's the banks, uh, the creditors, uh, the, uh, the, wealth, the bondholders of the banks, and the stockholders of the banks. So uh, for them, the, uh, their business plan is to make real estate prices higher and higher so that uh, anybody who wants to buy a home is going to have to borrow more and more and more uh, from the bank and pay more and more interest uh, in order to get a home. Or uh, if you're a real estate speculator, uh, to buy a home to rent out uh, because uh, rental prices are going up. Well, right now, certainly in America uh, and in New York City, uh, commercial prices are pretty far down. The prices that are going up are home prices. There's been so many office buildings closed down. Today, I had only the second trip into Manhattan that I've had in the last year. Both trips were to the dentist. And because I wanted to buy a baseball magazine, I uh, went out of my way. I went to Grand Central Terminal at 42nd Street. And I knew that there used to be a big uh, 
a magazine store there where I could get my baseball annual to follow the White Sox coming up. And imagine my disappointment when not only was uh, was the magazine store closed, but all the clo- stores in Grand Central were closed. So then uh, I walked down towards Fifth Avenue, uh, and, and I found the restaurants were closed, the uh, stores were closed, even the big steakhouse, which was a big corporate uh, expensive restaurant, was uh, closed. Uh, walked down Fifth Avenue, most of the places were closed, uh, boarded up. Uh, finally, I found uh, a Barnes & Noble store where I was able to get my baseball magazine. Uh, but all the rest of the uh, uh, Fifth Avenue was all closed down. Uh, uh, Madison Avenue closed down, just like here in Queens are, that are closed. Uh, and uh, uh, there was hardly anybody on the subway. Mm. And the reason everybody's closed is nobody's going into Manhattan. I felt like I was walking out here in a Queens park, walking down Fifth Avenue. Uh, it was Everything was deserted, uh, where it's usually very crowded. Well, you know, on Fifth Avenue in the 40s, uh, going to my dentist's office, uh, it was just hardly anybody there. So uh, I have uh, friends of mine who, uh, one friend uh, had a uh, commercial building in the Bronx, part of New York City, and uh, he's trying to sell it. It's rented out. Nobody is willing to buy it. And they say, we're all waiting for the big collapse. We're waiting for June. In June, uh, America, uh, the moratorium on rent arrears and uh, debt arrears, mortgage arrears, all expires. 50,000 New Yorkers are going to be kicked out of their houses and uh, 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 or their apartments uh, onto the street. Presumably, they're going to finally be riding the subways, so you'll get someone in the subway again. Uh, and so all of the, uh, there have been a lot of private capital uh, companies that are formed in the last six months. And they've all loaded up on private capital. They're all waiting to come in and buying buildings at distressed prices. Uh, homeowners that have lost their jobs, couldn't pay the mortgage, that's, they're going to be foreclosed on, sold at a distressed price. Commercial buildings are going to be sold at a distressed price. The restaurants, as you know, are all been closed. Uh, uh, all sorts of office buildings have been closed. So everybody's waiting for the big crash. And so the Federal yeah. Reserve is keeping the interest rates low so that it'll pay people to bid against each other, to borrow cheap money, and you know at least to uh, try to buy the uh, bank foreclosures at a good rate and uh, bail out the landlords uh, at a good late rate. And the landlords find that they can't make payments because they're finally able to begin evicting the 50,000 tenants again. So that's the story from, from New York. The function of, of uh, the central bank is to keep the commercial banks yeah. afloat so that they won't lose so much money on their real estate portfolio that they uh, end up wiping out the net worth, the stockholders' equity. Our eviction moratorium expires next week, so uh, we have a, ra- a raft of uh, uh, welfare cutbacks along with the eviction moratorium mm-hmm. Uh, there's also new rental tenancy laws uh, that are scaring uh, property investors. So uh, we've got this dysfunctional uh, rental market that's uh, oversupplied and rents are falling. But in the housing market, everyone's battling to try and get their little uh, Australian dream going with a, a backyard that's not an apartment and uh the, the survival skills are on show as people battle each other to try and uh, uh, 
uh, find the the great Australian dream if it still exists at all. But, Why not call it the great Australian nightmare? Yeah, the debt nightmare. Yeah, you know, what kind of a dream are we talking about? Well, you the, don't don't give them the euphemism. Get your own uh, cockism or whatever you call it. Yes, well, it's uh, a dream house with a nightmare mortgage. That's for sure. And, uh, you know, a lot of these problems are built up because society has no flexibility anymore. There's no resilience. We don't have uh, savings beyond uh, one or two weeks. Uh, And so the role of high land prices has really thrown a straitjacket on society. And uh, for me, I just wonder whether central banks have become more enamored to the political process. They're they're more uh, uh, into short-term political fixes on keeping the music going rather than recognizing um, this this pressure that uh, high land and mortgage prices place on society. And uh, here we are in Eastern Australia. I'm lucky that my state survived, but uh, we've had incredible bushfires the start of last year. The pandemic wiped things out and now a once in 100 year flood that's come through and wiped out most of uh, the surrounds to Sydney. So uh, they're really feeling it up there and sure there's going to be a lot of pain. But um, yeah, this role of the the central banks have been talk about a change in monetary policy and a new era is coming through under this sort of great reset banner. Uh, Where do you sit on the role they're playing? Well, in America, we have a hundred year flood every five years now. Uh, and that's probably going to be for Australia also because there's a shift in uh, extreme weather is the counterpart for global warming. So there are going to be a lot of floods. It's going to be very expensive to buy uh, housing insurance, uh, flood insurance. And even if you buy the insurance, they don't pay. You have to sue the company. And it usually, as soon as you sue an insurance company in America, they immediately charge off the value of your suit as if it's an expense so they don't have to pay income tax. And then they try to stall for five years. And in the five years, make enough money off uh, raising rates and speculation that uh, they earn enough so that it won't cost them a penny to end up paying you something uh, after you pay uh, uh, your lawyer. Uh, I had to pay my lawyer uh, over $50,000 to try to recover from an insurance company on a, on a burglary. They don't pay. It's very frustrating. The insurance industry is part of the financial sector, the fire sector. Finance, insurance, and real estate is a symbiotic sector, and uh, they're all making money. And uh, uh, you talked about resilience. The financial sector lives in the short term. For them, resilience is till the end of the year, or maybe it's only a week. Uh, they're only concerned about they're going to get the bonus. They're concerned about one year as our politicians, because then there's going to be another election. The time frame is very short term. So the the way in which the financial and real estate and insurance sector are organized is not resilient for the economy at large. It's very resilient if you're a billionaire and you're a bank or an insurance company making money without actually having to produce anything. But if you're part of labor or business capital, it's not resilient at all. And obviously, if you look at how much uh, Australia is paying for its housing, that's the ideal of America. America wants to be like Australia. They want housing prices to be just as high because this would be a bonanza for the banks here. You know, by the time the bankers retire, uh, they'll be able to take huge uh, stock options with them and bonuses and 
uh, they'll be able to live, live very well, and they'll leave a devastated economy in, in their wake. So if you have any question, why is it that Australia is growing so much and not the United States, England, or Australia, except for its housing prices, this is it. Living in the short run is a completely different philosophy. It's a predatory, extractive, rent-seeking philosophy. Living in the long run is more like industrial engineering, more than financial engineering. So uh, you have two different philosophies, and Australia's uh, gone with the uh, rent-seeking philosophy uh, uh, very heavily. That's why it doesn't like uh, China, because China is trying to keep prices low. I'm working with them as much as I can, advocating a land tax and make quite a bit of progress there. You have a, really uh, Western civilization as opposed to uh, uh, Eurasia. It's, it's, it's like uh, they're going in different directions because of the dynamic you're talking about. Listeners, we're in conversation with Professor Michael Hudson from michael-hudson.com. An incredible resource of information there. Make sure you check it out. All right, let's go back to the interview. The Chinese-American relationship opened up again in Alaska recently. Do you feel that's sitting at the heart, underpinning the the debates? Uh, Sure, there might be smoke and mirrors over various tariffs and so forth, but do you think it's really about this role of uh, land price and debt and the the sort of invisible chains that places around society's neck versus the Chinese option of avoiding that and working together as a community somewhat. Uh, Who knows what sort of big brother payoff they have to uh, live with there. But how is China keeping in check their real estate prices? I know they've got a couple of good policies there. A number of ways. I mean, they don't have banks making heavy debt-leveraged loans like they have in the United States. And in fact, they're talking about uh, recapturing the you know, the land that's been sold. I, it, it would take me a whole hour just to go into how different the Chinese real estate market is. Uh, it's not like the Western market. Uh, China is still very largely rural. Uh, the countryside is very important. Uh, there's a problem with uh, local uh, rural debt that is being solved by selling off land in order to finance local town budgets or uh, district uh, budgets. So it's completely a a different form of financing uh, uh, than you have here. The tendency in Australia and England and America is to think, well, they're a rival. Uh, Who's going to uh, produce uh, uh, iPhones and internet goods and uh, Huawei uh, 5G better? They're not commercial rivals with the same system. What's really in rivalry is a different economic system. And it's a financialized system uh, in uh, the West, uh, financialized, centered on real estate and on uh, making money by increasing asset prices for real estate, stocks and bonds and for uh, monopoly rent. In China, you have a whole different form of determined of land prices, because here, the function of land is basically a location issue. It's a, a rent of location. You, you want to be able to uh, have access to transportation. You want schools. You want parks. In the United States and in the West, these are increasingly privatized ever since Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. In China, these things are provided as public utilities. 
so that uh, transportation is much less there than it costs uh, in the West. Education is much less. Healthcare is much less. You, you have an economy where the same kind of economy that the United States and uh, Germany were moving towards in the 19th century. Actually, what China's doing is following the kind of industrialization policy that America and Germany were pioneering in the 19th century. You want to minimize economic rent. You don't want monopoly rent. You want controls on monopoly. And China's controlling, uh, preventing a monopolies from developing, as you've seen with the whole fight over Ant uh, and uh, uh, Jack Ma's companies. You, you don't want transportation monopolies. You don't want education monopolies forcing people into debt. You're trying to avoid a debt leveraged economy in China. Now, obviously, every economy needs, needs credit. But China's kept the uh, essence of money creation and credit in the public domain to be issued basically on an industrial engineering basis. What does the economy need in order to grow? And uh, there obviously are some companies in China that have not been able to meet their debt service. When a, a company in China that is deemed socially desirable can't pay its debt, the banks renegotiate the debt. They don't want to foreclose. They don't want to say, okay, we're going to foreclose and sell you to one of our uh, customers at a distressed price. We're going to try to keep you uh, where you are. They don't want to create a homeless population. The whole last 40 years has been fixing China from having the homeless population. It's a, it's a conflict of economic systems, not a conflict within a given common economic system with the same kind of strategy. Yes, and as more countries move away from the US dollar, I mean, it's been one of the most poignant statements you've made is is how nations such as Japan and China buy US treasuries and they help finance the US military imperial strategy such that uh, they can afford to surround those countries uh, with uh, US bases. How is America planning for this continued battle and this move away from uh, U.S. treasuries uh, as uh, the weight of debt uh, hangs over American society? Oh, it's another trick question. They're not planning. How can you plan? There isn't any plan. All you can do is postpone. All you can do is stall uh, long enough for them to be out of office and uh, take their money and run. There's no planning. How on earth can you? In order to plan, you'd have to change the economy. You'd have to move it back to where it was a century ago when industrial capitalism was trying to take off and they were trying to prevent monopolies. Uh, right now, the monopolies have already gained uh, control of the government, uh, the rent-seeking monopolies. Land rent, natural resource rent, the oil and gas and mining uh, sectors, and uh, monopoly rent. That's where almost all the uh, the 1% have made their money. Yeah, but the, uh, what about uh, U.S. diplomacy? I mean, there have been some big challenges to the American uh, kudos in the last four years. Uh, it, are the roles of diplomats under Biden, have they been advised, look, we've got to build our relations back up so these countries buy U.S. treasuries? So what's happening in that space? They only have one plan, atom bomb the world. What they're threatening, do what we say or we're going to blow up the world. And other countries will either believe it or they'll call the bluff. There's no plan. What, what on earth does America have to offer? It, has, it can offer access to the U.S. market, which, of course, will enable Europe to undersell or other countries to undersell uh, American uh, 
industry and create even more unemployment. America will look even more like a rust belt, uh, as we call the Midwest. Mm. Uh, the plan is to take the money and run and to get by uh, to the last drop uh, as much as you can, leaving uh, a bankrupt economy in the wake. Yeah. And uh, they, they'll then take all the money and they're going to move to New Zealand and, and buy bomb shelters and dig underground. So there's going to be a whole 1% of America living underground in New Zealand, waiting for the world to blow up and uh, uh, in troglodytes. Why is the rent so high? Has it ended? Culture being sold to its highest bidder. Undesirable neighborhoods being gentrified. You would be bitter too, if only you knew. One of the things I'm watching as... You know, QE keeps uh, pushing money into the system uh, all around the world. Governments are using various tools to do it. Land prices, uh, the share market, they're all booming. But people are somehow finding a way to convince banks to lend the money. But I feel that what's coming up is uh, 40, 50-year mortgages. Who knows if it will be at Japan's uh, level of 120-year type mortgages. Are those sort of pressures starting to build in America? And is any sort of reform group talking about limiting them to uh, 30 years? Uh, you already had that in 2008. By 2008, banks were saying no amortization mortgages, interest-only mortgages. Uh, the same thing is for student loans. For student loans, uh, you can pay only the interest, no principal. Banks never want to be repaid the principal. They don't want to be paid in 125 years. They want never to be repaid. They want the principal to go up and up. So all you're doing is paying the added interest rates on the principal. And while the central bank uh, rates to uh, commercial banks may be uh, 0.1%. The interest rate on education loans is over 8%. For mortgage loans, depending on what ethnicity you are, it's also anywhere between you know four and a half and seven and a half percent if you're black. So uh, we already have the perpetual no amortization loans in America. Is there a battle going on between good money printing, uh, the sort of uh, limitations to uh, commercial and small business lending that uh, Josh Ryan Collins and others have written about, and the bad printing, uh, which which is what we've been talking about? Is that sort of battle going on behind closed doors? No, there's no battle at all. The bad the bad printing is one. Bad mo- the money is to be made in bad money not in credit-worthy money. The, the, the banks uh, are smart enough to realize that the game's over. Uh, you, you can't have good uh, lending for business and productive lending without changing uh, the whole structure of the economy. If you, if you would, suppose you were to have, a, uh, you could keep housing prices down very easily. You have a, what you've talked about, a land tax. A land tax would, would collect the, uh, the rent for to finance the public sector, you wouldn't have to have an income tax. You wouldn't have to have a sales tax. You wouldn't have to have other taxes. You'd keep the uh, price of uh, uh, housing down to the construction costs, not uh, rising land prices. But that wouldn't make money for the one percent. Uh, Australia believes that uh, the beneficiaries of the economy should be the one percent. Uh, economists have something they call revealed preference. 
what is it that Australian voting reveals about what they want? They want higher housing prices, they want lower wages, they want lower lifespans, and they want income to be more concentrated so the wealthy people can run the economy and the Australians think that they'll do a better job. But what they don't realize is that the 1% does a better job in making money for itself at the expense of the 99%. So the Australians have sort of a a view of the economy that is sort of more science fiction than uh, scientific. Yes, well, it seems like there aren't many nations, uh, many thinkers even around the world that uh, uh, can critique uh, trickle-down economics and recognise that it's really trickle-up economics. And, uh, yeah, this fire sector sits at the heart of what we're talking about. But that's not talked about in the media. The media don't talk about it. You're not going to see it, I bet, on Sky TV. I mean, you see, uh, here you and I are talking uh, I don't know how many uh, viewers you have, but it's not like uh, Sky TV uh, that you were good enough to get me on when uh, you brought me to Australia. Uh. Yes, well, uh, let's let's hope something changes. It seems like Rupert Murdoch's going to hang on for another decade or so. Uh, I don't have too much faith in in his sons to open up uh, the. Um, information flow to alternative perspectives but yeah so what are you seeing really coming up in the next six months or so as uh these eviction moratoriums and uh bad debts and so forth start to uh really weigh down on society nobody can tell nobody that i know can tell even how far the stock market is going to go up to us wait a minute where's the where's the reality underlying this nobody i know can really tell. All they can do is follow the crowd, hope to bail out in a hurry when they see the crash. And there's no way of knowing when a crash comes because somewhere there's a break in the chain of payments and uh, that causes a disaster. Uh, But there's no way of knowing when the disaster comes. Australia is willing to act as a victim and do pretty much whatever the United States or Britain, which does everything the United States tells it to do, uh, tells it to do. So uh, the United States is going to put its own interest first England's interest second, and Australia is going to be pretty far down the line. So it's a country that lets itself be victimized. So uh, I don't know what to forecast for Australia. You you never know how much and how deeply people can be victimized until they fight back. All you can do is squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, and maybe someday somebody will fight back. But uh, that point has not arrived either in America or England or Australia yet. So There's no uh, reasonable forecast except things are just going to get tighter and tighter and tighter, and all the income will be more and more concentrated in the top 1%. Yes, well, it kind of feels like the the climate reality is sinking in here and the economic uh, costs of that are starting to weigh down on on government. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see whether these natural disasters, these sort of, uh, in a way, planned disasters such as COVID that, you know, Big Pharma knew was coming down the pipeline. They knew a pandemic was going to hit, but somehow uh, they, they wound back R&D and now they've got a bonanza on their hands. But the combination of uh, disaster capitalism and environmental uh, cataclysms uh, puts society on edge and that's where that flexibility is needed and what we're struggling with. So, uh, yeah, Michael, uh, any concluding comments uh, to round up uh, another interview? 
I've never been so unable to forecast the future as I have now because uh, you keep expecting people to act in their self-interest. That's the assumption underlying all political theory, but people are not voting in their self-interest. They're not acting in their self-interest. The whole economy seems to be self-destructing and nobody, uh, you know, you and I are talking about what's happening and I've talked with a number of other people and I, I put the interviews on the website you're the webmaster for. And uh, there are a few good sites like Naked Capitalism to talk about it, but uh, all we can do is watch and say, my heavens, how long can it go on? And nobody knows when it will stop. Well, there we have Professor Michael Hudson from michael-hudson.com. And uh, as you listen to that conversation, you become uh, aware that society is so busy playing the Monopoly board game that uh, they don't really cotton on to the fact that they're being played by monopolists through so many different channels. I hope you guys can uh, check out the show notes and our work at prosper.org.au to tighten your handle on this forgotten knowledge of calling the wealthiest people on the planet to account by using the economic wisdom that's been developed over thousands of years. Don't believe that the neoconomists we have uh, running the show these days are the only version of economics 